This is the ACR 2023 Daily Podcast. Here you'll listen to faculty recordings, discussions, and interviews taken from the ACR Convergence meeting in San Diego. I hope you enjoy this recording. Hello, I'm Anthony Chan uh, from London, United Kingdom. I'm here at ACR 23 in San Diego uh, reporting for Room Now. And uh, today at the conference, we've uh, heard about uh, new developments in the area of rheumatoid arthritis. And today I want to focus on the area of diet. There's a lot of uh, discussion that we've had about the impact of diet on uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, today I'm joined by um, uh, Marta Salaklimon. Uh, she is a researcher from University of California, San Diego. And she's presented an abstract number 2125 on the use of a diet called ITIS. And this is in comparison to the Mediterranean diet. And uh, some really interesting findings, and I'm very happy that, uh, Marta, you can come and join us. Yeah, thank you so So um, tell us a little bit about your study uh, from the uh, presentation today. Yeah, so uh, we conducted a blinding randomized clinical trial, and this is an ongoing study, but the preliminary outcomes that we, that we are finding is the, the, the poster in, that we presented. Uh, so what we are trying to do is to observe the effect of the ITIS diet for three months in uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients and the effect of the Mediterranean diet for uh, three months in rheumatoid arthritis patients. So at each, uh, at each visit, what we do is a physical examination of the patient. We also gave them a, a health test, like the health assessment questionnaire. Uh, and also we collect blood, stool, and saliva samples for the further analysis. Um, so what we observe uh, right now is that patients following ITIS diet uh, have improved uh, a little better than, than patients following just the, the Mediterranean diet. So uh, ITIS patients, uh, so, sorry, uh, patients following the ITIS diet improve their pain, their fatigue, their CD, um, uh, their visual scale analog from the physician and the visual scale analog from the, from the patient. Uh, while the Mediterranean diet patients uh, improve their C-day and the visual scale analog uh, from, from, the, from the physician. Uh, this is, uh, of course, preliminary data, so we cannot say that ITIS diet is much better than the Mediterranean diet, but this is uh, some tendencies that we can observe. Um, also, while, um, while seeing the adherence to the diet, we could observe that ITIS patients were more adherent to the diet, uh, we are further analyzing this data, so I cannot tell you much about this, but uh, this is what we observed, and we, we thought that was interesting to, 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 to further analyze. And then for the microbiome analysis, what we just did was uh, with the baseline microbiome of all uh, the patients, we tried to predict the response of, of the diet. So for ITIS diet patients, uh, at day plus 15, those who did not respond, show a higher abundance of uh, Kerybacteria and Rekibacteria, and those uh, who responded f uh, find a higher abundance of the rhea. Uh, while in the Mediterranean diet patients, we observed just that the non-responders had a, a higher abundance of Enterococcus. Uh, and then we observed very different things uh, at three months, and we are not very sure if this is just because we don't have enough patients, like we have some dropouts, so we don't have as much patients at three months at, as we did at two at uh, sorry day plus fifteen. Um, but we observe some differences, which uh, for ITIS diet will be uh, 
that uh, the non-responders show higher abundance in uh, Coryobacterium and uh, the responders show higher abundance in Granulicatella. And then for the Mediterranean diet patients, we didn't observe any uh, higher abundance in non-responders, but we observed some almost statistically uh, significant high abundance in responders for uh, paraprevotella and lagnos, uh, lagnobacterium. So a very comprehensive study, mm-hmm. uh, although I understand you used to say preliminary, but I suppose very promising uh, because for many t- years we've only kind of knew about Mediterranean diet mainly. Mm-hmm. So for our benefit, can you just tell us what is in the ITIS diet? What, what components yeah. make up the ITIS diet? Sure. So uh, ITIS diet, the main difference between ITIS diet and Mediterranean diet is that in ITIS diet we try to eliminate the pro-inflammatory foods that can be present in the Mediterranean diet. For instance, dairies. Um, uh, well, with dairies, I, I have to say that there are some contradictory data. Uh, we just decided to remove it because it can be pro-inflammatory, but there's no for sure evidence that, that supports that this is uh, pro-inflammatory. Uh, we are removing the alcohol, uh, sugary drinks, um, uh, refined grains, uh, solanosia like tomato and eggplants, um, and red meat. And also for for vegetables, we 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 try them to to eat like more kale, more broccoli, so more greens, more anti-inflammatory uh, vegetables. In terms of um, of fruits, we ask them to eat more enzymatic fruits like uh, mango or pineapple. Uh, also anti antioxidant fruits like berries, strawberries, raspberries uh, and then in terms for instance of fish we ask them to eat more omega-3 rich fish uh, which will be the fatty fatty fish but the smaller ones because of the high methyls and for um, sorry for for meat we are asking them to to eat chicken or turkey but like two to three times per week not more uh, because the the main thing we want to do is try to to change a little bit the um, the protein from meat from animal to vegetable protein because mm-hmm. that's also more anti-inflammatory, yeah, right? Yeah. Uh, also, in terms of uh, coffee and green tea, we are trying to reduce the coffee intake and improve the green tea intake because it's much more anti-inflammatory and antioxidant and. Basically, those are the... So more green tea uh, in the mm. ITIS diet, yeah. uh, which is uh, something we should uh, encourage more, yeah. <laughs> uh, certainly from this evidence that we have. So there was an improvement in some of the report patient outcomes, yes, uh, uh-huh. some of the uh, clinical outcomes, yeah. but also there was a change in the biodiversity or the microbiome yeah. in the two diets. Mm-hmm. So do we think that that perhaps could explain some of the clinical outcomes, although it's preliminary, what is your projection? Yeah. So our projection is uh, when we uh, finally get all the patients that we are trying to reach, uh, we're going to evaluate the microbiome uh, at each time point to see if this can be changed because of the diet. Uh, but I think uh, the baseline trying to respond, uh, t- sorry, trying to predict the response is also important. Uh, so yeah, we're getting further analysis in this but also we are trying to to evaluate the bile acids and different acids that come come from the from bacteria uh, so it's more what we are doing than what i could show in the poster uh, but yeah we are trying to to have um 
a correlation between the the biological samples and the re their response. And I think that would be quite important in mm. terms of uh, showing a biological effect yeah. uh, of your diet on the on the microbiome and then linking it back to the the clinical outcomes yeah. as as a kind of completion of the whole loop, yeah. if you like. <laughs> um, so going forward. You know what does you know what does the future hold for your project? What 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 would be the next kind of steps? Well, you'll be looking into. I know you're going to complete the, the uh, assessments and the microbiome. Yeah, uh, and you recruit more patients. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we will also be analyzing the bile acids. Mm, oh yes. Um, and we will also be analyzing uh, saliva saliva samples and. That will be mainly the thing. Also, oh, sorry, we will also be trying to observe the oxylipin change. Um, but those are our thoughts right now. Okay. Uh, I think we will have to do much more things. Yeah. But those are the, the near future. Yeah, so, so a lot of promising new data mm -hmm. that we probably would see in future meetings and yeah. hear more about your work. Um, so uh, are there any sort of take-home messages that you have from your study for our audience? Uh, yeah, so um, wait. I cannot say that the ITIS diet is better than nature and diet for our preliminary data, but uh, we can observe that if you improve the anti-inflammatory and antioxidant foods and remove the pro-inflammatory foods, uh, this can be helping the patient. We can observe that with only 20-something uh, patients, we, we could observe that. So I could say that you can try to, 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 to follow this uh, as, as, as a patient or as a as a physician, you can uh, advise us to your to your uh, patient, and that could be uh, a really good uh, improvement for them. The, 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 we used to say an apple a day yeah. keeps the doctor away. <laughs> maybe not at this point in time, but maybe in the future, a cup of green tea a day yeah. <laughs> might keep the doctor away. Early yeah. days, but we look forward to your research. So thank you very much for. Uh, sharing with us your information thank you and so we much. look forward to your your future research studies thank you very much thank you thank you so much okay hi everyone this is bella Mehta reporting from new uh, from the acr 23 for room now and i have with me uh, paras karmacharya hi. who is uh, going to talk to us about a very interesting abstract abstract number 502 um, which is developing uh, algorithms to accurately identify psoriatic arthritis patients. Um, can you tell us more about your study? Sure. So, as we know, electronic health records are a cost-effective and efficient way of um, identifying large group of patients um, for our research, especially for um, diseases which are um, less common. Um, However, we know that psoriatic arthritis is a really heterogeneous disease, and so that sort of translates to uh, the finding them in the EHR as well. And so we wanted to develop um, an algorithm which could accurately identify these patients in the EHR. Um, and so for this, we used our um, uh, EHR, um, which is called the synthetic derivative. So it's a replica of the EPIC EHR. Um, which is de-identified. So what do you, when you mean, <clears throat> when you say replica, it's like the same patients, everything yes. is the same, but the number, the identifiers are just masked out. Yes, it's, it's stripped off of the identifiers and, and maybe the, the dates are off by about, or could be off by anywhere from one to three years. I see. Um, uh, so that it's totally de-identifiable. Um, and the, the reason for that is it is, um, it is um, um, uh, 
uh, associated with our biobank, okay. uh, which is um, about half of the patients in this uh, synthetic derivative have um, uh, at least samples collected okay. for sequencing, and so they are actively being sequenced. So, so, so how many patients did you have, and what did you find? Yes, and so uh, we, we found about uh, we found a cohort of 2,700 patients. Um, with psoriatic arthritis. With psoriatic arthritis. So the, the way, um, and it has a pretty good positive predictive value of uh, above 90 percent and a uh, sensitivity of 81 percent. So, uh, so, and you sort of went back and checked the charts of a few patients? That's yes, what you... Yes. So, uh, what we did was, so, so the synthetic derivative has about 3.5 million uh, patients. And so, among them, we first screened them for any... Um, ICD-9 or 10 codes for psoriatic arthritis or psoriatic arthritis in, their, in the keyword okay. uh, of the chart. And uh, that got it down to about uh, 5,700. And after that, basically, we split those into, we found like random samples uh, in that uh, 5,700 patients, 200 training and 300 um, validation uh, set. And then we reviewed both of those sets manually I to see. see who are uh, actual cases, true cases. And true case was basically defined as anybody who had, um, uh, who was, who had a conformity diagnosis by a rheumatologist or fulfilled the CASPER criteria for chart review. Okay, so then in a way you had 5,000 patients and but at the end of it you just had 2,000 patients. Yes. So it's like... 50% though, right? That's true. That's that's uh, sort of the the usual trend in the EHR that we find that about 50% are true cases. And then that's why I think it's important to, to develop have these. A actual algorithm, yes. Okay, well, great. Uh, so I guess uh, for people doing clinical research, um, having like one code by a rheumatologist or like multiple codes uh, uh, serially in an electronic medical record uh, sort of defines the true cases. Is that what you would say? Um, so this, uh, so in our EHR, the best algorithm was one where uh, we had at least four codes, four or more That's codes. a lot. It is, yes. I have four or more ICD-9 or 10 codes for psoriatic arthritis or one code by a rheumatologist. Um, now this might be different for other EHRs based of on like how people code. For example, like if there's a rule out, if people are used to putting like a rule out code, if rheumatologists mm -hmm. are used to putting a rule out code for diseases, then that might not work as well. Um, and so the number of codes might be different, but it, I think it sort of gives a starting point to look at algorithms and other EHRs as well, but it definitely it would need some tailoring to fit other EHRs. Great, and where do you think you'll go from here? Uh, so what's this the future? Is, <laughs> so this is definitely um, the first step of our research where we uh, have identified the, these patients with psoriatic arthritis. So the next step is basically we are actively reviewing their charts to better phenotype these patients. Um, and then um, we, um, in the next two years,
So it's actively being uh, sequenced right now, uh, these patients, and so we hope to uh, find a combination of both uh, phenotype and genotype that could predict uh, treatment outcomes in this oh, great. Well, we'll uh, watch from your group much more. And with that, signing off, this is Bella Mehta. Follow us on Room Now um, and on Twitter, uh, Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Yus Yusuf, uh, I'm from Leeds, uh, so I'm reporting for Room Now uh, in sunny San Diego. Uh, today uh, we would like uh, to discuss uh, uh, an abstract uh, about uh, an impressive result uh, in the field of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so this, the abstract number is 0840. Uh, as we all know, we have many therapies now uh, in the treatment of uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, however, in clinical trials, there could be none or maybe a small number of uh, therapies that could achieve a higher uh, hurdle endpoints such as ACR50. Therefore, this is quite an impressive result that we have from a phase two studies uh, of a compound which combine uh, JAK1 and TIC2 inhibitor uh, uh, named uh, as uh, TLL01. Aid, uh, which is a study in China. So I'm here joined uh, by the uh, chief investigator, Dr. Liang. Hello, Dr. Liang. Hi, Joseph. Yeah. Uh, how are you? Good. Thank, Good. You. Uh, thank, you. thank you for joining us uh, in room now. We appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, would you like to uh, give a little bit of background about your study and your objectives? Okay, yeah. So uh, this is a study of uh, TLL018, which is uh, highly selective dual TIC2 JAK1 inhibitor. Uh, so we compare head-to-head to, -head to tofacitinib. We want to see if uh, it can perform better than a JAK alone uh, inhibitor. So this is a phase two study, randomized head-to-head uh, uh, -head, uh, comparison study. Mm -hmm. And um, so can you please tell me the, the design a little bit, just to summarize it? Yeah, so the, the design is, uh, uh, we studied in the, uh, the patient population is, is uh, uh, CDMAS uh, intolerant of resistant patients. Um, and uh, we use uh, ACR50 as the primary endpoint. Uh, another interesting feature of the design is after 12 weeks of treatment, those who didn't achieve ACR50, they changed uh, the treatment. So the TOFA, uh, the patient on tofacitinib, they will change to our middle dose. So we want to see if our middle dose can overcome the resistance to tofacitinib. So I'm just interested a little bit more about the patient population. So majority of them are metatrexate, uh, refractory. Uh, do, do you have any uh, patients who had a previous biological exposure and including a, a JAK inhibitor? Yes, yes, uh, we do actually. Uh, besides uh, um, mesotrexate, uh, about 30% of the patients received the prior JAK inhibitors and about 50% of the patients received the prior biologic. Mm, okay, so, um, would you like to summarize your top-line results uh, of this trial? Yes, um, so uh, in our trial, uh, tofacitinib had uh, an ACR50 rate of uh, uh, 41% by week 12. Uh, compared to that, uh, our middle dose uh, had an ACR50 rate of 65%, so it's much higher than tofacitinib, which is statistical significance. Mm. 
And uh, how about those people who did not meet, uh, you know, the people treated with tofacitinib who did not meet the ACR, who were then, uh, you know, randomized to your drug, how did they fare? They did very well, very well, actually. Um, out of 12 patients who, uh, uh, who were on tofacitinib didn't reach ACR50 and changed to our uh, middle dose, by week 24, so in other words, another 12 weeks of treatment, uh, 10 of the 12 achieved ACR50 or higher. Mm. So it's a very high percentage. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. Uh, so uh, clinical efficacy is one thing, but uh, all our audience also wants to know about safety. So uh, can you just, just tell me, was there any uh, safety concern from this uh, phase two uh, size uh, study? No, no, no safety concerns. Uh, among the, all the four cohorts, uh, including tofacitinib, uh, all the four cohorts have similar safety profile. So uh, our low, middle, high dose groups all have the same, uh, very similar pro safety profile. So in other words, uh, higher dose didn't cause more uh, uh, AEs. So I think this is really, uh, you know, uh, a cause for opti optimism, you know, for us. So what we want to know is what is your next step in terms of development of this therapy? Yeah, so we, uh, we started a phase three trial in, in arthritis uh, in China, and uh, we are conducting uh, a phase two trial in psoriasis in the United States. And we finished a phase two trial uh, in psoriasis in China, and also in chronic uh, spontaneous urticaria in, in China. Yeah. And do you envisage that at some point, very, very soon, that you're going to go global in the trial? Yeah, hopefully uh, we'll find a, uh, have a partner to uh, do a multinational uh, uh, trial. Uh, that, that takes a lot of resources which you know, we, we right now don't have. So. And my last question is pertaining to the current phase three trial that is running in China. Um, which dose that do you, that do you do you go for? Which was the middle dose? The middle dose, yes. right? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Brilliant, right? Uh, so thank you so much uh, for your time, and uh, so thank you uh, for listening to our interview. Uh, I hope uh, you find it very useful and informative. Uh, so something you know, uh, compound that you know we will uh, closely monitor for the future, uh, and you can follow uh, uh, Room Now for more uh, coverage. Uh, uh, for the ACR content. Bye-bye, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Hi, I'm David Liu from Melbourne, Australia, reporting for Room Now from ACR Convergence 2023. Looking at all sorts of rheumatoid arthritis stuff, but today we're looking at abstract 0433, and I have here the author, Dr. Jiha Lee, rheumatologist at U Michigan. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. And thank you for letting me talk about my favourite subject, which is about older adults in RA. And so I got interested in this first because I was shocked to know that, you know, one in six older adults are over the age of 65 and that number's growing. And we're taking care of a progressively older panel patients who have more multimorbidity, polypharmacy. However, yet clinical trials that inform our guidelines usually enlist adults around the age of 53 and 55. So there's a real gap in our knowledge of how we practice for these older adults, but that's the reality of our lives, right? And I also discovered the prevalence of RA is not only increasing, but there's a small group of older adults who are newly diagnosed with RA over the age of 65. 
So I used Medicare data to kind of get an understanding of who these older adults and are they getting the right treatment that they need. And I got to say, I was a little disheartened. Are they getting the right treatment? No, they're not. No. Because only about a third of RA patients after a real diagnosis of late onset RA and being followed by rheumatologists for the most part are only getting DMARs about 30% of the patients. And what's astounding is among those who are not getting any DMARs, about 10% are getting steroids only for more than six months at a high dose of seven and a half or more, which a lot of our colleagues have shown repeatedly over the years that it's really harmful. So I just want to stop there. I would presume that all of our rheumatoid arthritis patients would get DMARDs. Regardless of the age, mm -hmm. you wouldn't think there'd be any reason not to have them on DMARDs. But only one third mm -hmm. in this large national cohort right. are on DMARDs. Yes. Where is this all going wrong? How does this happen? Well, I think there's a number of reasons. So we call the people diagnosed before young onset RA, right? So those 70-80% of them are on DMARDs. And because they're diagnosed at a young age and their multimorbidities are developing alongside, I think physicians, we have less resistance in terms of how to make those modifications. But when you're an older adult who has, again, more multimorbidity, polypharmacy, often frail, and again, we're swimming in the area of no data. Like, how do we know what the drug disease or drug-drug interactions are going to be? So there's a lot of hedging to go on. I mean, just take methotrexate for an example, right? Older adults have more chronic kidney disease. That's our reference or go-to drug. And if we don't start there, and that's the the drug that allows us to keep on anti-TNS, where do we go? What do we do? Sure. So these people are just swimming along on steroids, low-dose steroids, sometimes high-dose steroids? Unfortunately so. And this, we just think that this is acceptable standard of care? I don't think we think it's acceptable, but I think it's that there's not enough emphasis placed on and yeah. we don't have enough guidance on mm. how best to care for older adults, nor do we really know to have a directed conversation with our older adults to elicit their goals, preferences, and see how do we make that trade-off. So is this primary care who's complicit in this, who are the ones, or is it rheumatologists? Where, who's, who's doing this? That's a really good question, and it's actually both, because as we know, there's a workforce shortage, mm. so we can't take care of everybody. So yes. we do rely on primary care physicians to first diagnose, and they're the first to encounter. And the good news is they're very good at initiating conventional synthetic DMARs, actually to some degree comparable to us. And our role really comes in when we have to introduce the complex regimens and the biologics, and that's where we're falling short. So I think it's part and due to access issues, workforce issues, but also some degree of ageism and lack of information that we collectively as rheumatology need to start addressing. So you've published other data looking at the way that rheumatologists prescribe, and I guess implicit in that is your ageism in the way that they prescribe for older adults. Mm -hmm. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I mean ageism is an ism and ageism is often at the intersection of racial ethnic disparities as well. You bring in that low socioeconomic status, so it really marginalizes older adults and they're underrepresented in studies. So we're really trying to understand how ageism impacts um, care. So actually a plug-in for my colleague, Una McCreese, is doing a survey on ageism. So if anybody's interested, we would really evaluate and value your input in that. But I think it's an area that we, in the context of DEI, ethics, research, education, that need to start looking at it to see how we behave. Because not only is it our patients getting old, our rheumatology workforce is getting old. 20% over the age of 60. So really, what, how are we going to fix this situation? How are we going to fix this situation where essentially two-thirds of, of patients who are over the age of 66 mm -hmm. are getting really what I would consider unac an unacceptable um, practice. Yes. How are we going to change that? But we need more data. We need the evidence. And that means we really need to make a conscious effort and a design plan to include older adults into clinical trials or actually any kind of research. Mm. And in fact, in 2017, 
NIH introduced the lifespan um, inclusion across lifespan policy, which means for anybody engaged in human subjects research, including surveys, interviews, human tissue, that older adults should not be excluded for cost convenience reasons, and it has to be representative of the population that we're actually providing care for. Mm. So I think that's one start place. And shameless plug here, I'm hoping RRF will also adopt that policy and be aligned with NIH. And that again, as a community, we can think about how to better bring in older adult perspectives, you know, experiences, all of that into the care and have data directed at the population that we're going to be cared for. Well, it sounds like we, we really badly need to. We talk at this meeting about a lot of incremental benefits and changes for rheumatoid arthritis patients, but it sounds like we're just leaving a whole heap of them by the wayside. Yes, and those are the people who are only just going to be growing. And the thing is, I do want to emphasize, this is a testament to the medical advances that we've made. Like, now that we've actually had advances in RE treatment, we get to now consider an older population that we can really benefit and ensure that they have a really good life. So for plenty more about everything rheumatoid arthritis is meaning, go on down to rheumnow.com. Hey, Jack Cush from ACR 23 in San Diego. Uh, this morning at the plenary session, a surprising abstract. I go to the plenary session usually looking to see a few, and then the ones in between I'm really not interested in. I'm kind of half paying attention to, not taking any notes. And this one caught me by surprise. And I wasn't taking notes until about, um, it was about 20% into the presentation. Uh, it's abstract 2427, again, a plenary pre presentation here at ACR, um, given by Alexandra Ida Celia uh, and a bunch of other investigators who were working as part of the Accelerate, Accelerated Medicines Partnership, AMP, in RA and SLE. They had a presentation on degranulating PR3 myeloid cells characterizing proliferative lupus nephritis. So, you know, there's a lot long with, wrong with lupus nephritis, meaning the things that we often measure really aren't all that predictive and helpful, like complement levels, like uh, urinary protein. I mean, these are all markers of bad disease, but as serial assessments go, not quite so good. Predictive value go, not quite so good. Anyway, in this particular analysis, that includes a number of investigators, including um, Andrea Fava and, and Michelle Petrie from Hopkins. Um, they did uh, analyses, multiplex histology, using serial immunohistochemistry of lupus biopsies from 11 lupus patients. Five of them had membranous disease, six of them had proliferative disease, and they were looking at a lot of different biomarkers. And when they did this, the immunohistochemistry, uh, chemistry, they showed these pictures of lupus tissue where it lit up like a wild night sky or an incredible Christmas tree standing for PR3. PR3? Isn't that a lab test? Isn't that a characterization classification scheme for ANCA-associated vasculitis? I have seen reports of PR3 associations with lupus nephritis, suggesting it might be something there and something you might want to pay attention to. This analysis, I think, was incredibly important. Number one, um, PR3 is expressed by neutrophils and other myeloid cells. But the PR3 lighting up on histology was not with neutrophils, but in fact probably with the myeloid cells. It was from within the glomeruli, but also in the interstitium, but more in the glomeruli. PR3 can be found in the urine as a biomarker and correlated with damage and the degree of nephritis or loss of renal function. 
Um, I think this is incredibly excited, exciting and gets added to that same story that Fava and Petrie and others have talked about of urinary biomarkers predicting, being better predictors of lupus activity. Again, we talked about it before, IL-16, CD-63, uh, and now we're going to add PR3 detection in urine as a potential biomarker for lupus. The data was exciting and really quite interesting. Uh, I think you'll be hearing more about this in the future. Uh, tune in for more great content from ACR 23. Hi, this is Bella Mehta reporting for Room Now from ACR 2023. Uh, and I wanted to talk to you about an interesting abstract looking at uh, belimumab in uh, lupus patients. Uh, the abstract number is 2347. Uh, and this is a post-hoc analysis of uh, five clinical trials. They pulled all the data and they wanted to see if there are racial or ethnic differences in uh, belimumab um, efficacy in these patients. Um, as you know, in clinical trials, there's underrepresentation sometimes of uh, minorities such as African Americans or Hispanics. Um, and that's uh, pooling all the data. Um, the thought was that it would help um, understand uh, how uh, the medication affects um, in particular uh, racial or ethnic groups. Um, so they had a total of um, uh, you know, about two to 3,000 patients, um, and they looked at not only lupus disease activity, but also flares, or like the uh, flare index, um, and approximately 20% uh, African Americans and like around 27% Hispanic patients in this cohort. Um, and what they found is, as we know, that belimumab did help with musculoskeletal and skin manifestations of lupus, um, particularly when they looked at the racial or ethnic differences. Um, I think uh, there were um, uh, a numerical increase uh, of uh, in African Americans, but the, the I guess the data was not statistically significant in terms of efficacy for African Americans, because I think as we no, the numbers are lower. Uh, so I think I wanted to bring this study up particularly uh, to bring out the issue of uh, enrollment in clinical trials. And there's been a lot of talks at ACR about it. Um, and I think we as investigators and the clinical community need to specifically focus on increasing enrollment of different racial and ethnic groups in our uh, studies. Uh, with that, uh, signing off, uh, this is Bella Mehta. Um, you can follow us on Room Now or follow me on Twitter, Bella underscore Mehta. Thank you. Hi, everyone. This is Aurelie Nash from Glasgow, live from day three of ACR in San Diego. Um, there is, I'm just out of the plenary session, and I've seen this, um, you know, this, this abstract, and I wanted to share it with you because there's been so much discussion over the past few years, about, especially with the Gloria trial, you know, saying, oh, you know, glucocorticoids are harmless. Just, like, give them to people, and, you know, they'll be fine. And, and I think... I think we need to remember that um, actually glucocorticoids um, increase um, cardiovascular events. And so this abstract, which was number 2430, was looking at the veterans database um, in array. And I mean, there have been studies already showing that yes, taking glucocorticoids increase cardiovascular um, events the duration, the dose, but there had never been a study where um, the, 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 
you know, the, the analysis was adjusted on time of exposure to glucocorticoids. And so this is exactly what this study was doing. And so they were looking at the time to measure cardiovascular event. It was a very conventional definition of MACE. Um, and it was adjusted for many variables um, with the caveat that it was not adjusted on disease activity. And this is something to keep in mind. But um, so they, they used these this methods where they looked at weighted cumulative dose estimate. Um, and they looked into 19,000 uh, patients roughly. So first of all, the two-thirds of them were currently treated with glucocorticoids and had exposure, which is, you know, um, quite a lot. And one-sixth of the population, which was roughly 15%, had a period of 90 days or over of glucocorticoids exposure. So they stratified the population uh, in three different groups, no steroids, um, those inferior to 1.2 milligram per day and those over 1.2 milligram per day. And so what they found is that the risk of uh, mace was 6%, so twice the risk for those who are exposed to over 1.2 milligram a day as opposed to those who those patients who were treated with less than 1.2 or no glucocorticoids. And so there was no difference between uh, less than 1.2 and no exposure at all. Um, and then they, did, uh, they, they looked into two different groups, those who were currently taking the glucocorticoids at the times of the maze. And so what they found is that for those patients that would take exposed to 5 milligrams for only 30 days, you know, which is not much if you think of it, there was an increase of 5% of mace, and those who were treated for 90 days with the same dose, you know, which is 5 milligrams, there was an increase of 10%. And, and I think it's important to keep that in mind because technically 5 milligrams is a dose where you can easily think, oh, you know, that's not much, we should carry on with that, but actually um, there's a risk there. And um, also, those who stopped using um, glucocorticoids at least one year before the, the maze, they also had an increased risk that was persistent after a year. And this was the case for only 30 days of exposure again um, with an increase of 3%. So I think these results are telling us that glucocorticoids do carry risk. And so they're not this, you know, super easy treatment to give to everybody. And, and you know, under five milligram, everybody's fine. Um, we need to keep in mind that obviously this study did not adjust on disease activity. And we know that disease activity um, is a strong driver of cardiovascular risk anyways. But I think this is just, you know, telling us this. And we need to keep that in mind. Um, and I think that's it. That's what I wanted to share with you today. Follow me on Twitter for more content at Aurelie Romo and tune to Romnat.com. Hello everyone, my name is Yus Yusuf. I'm from Leeds. I'm reporting for Room Now uh, at this uh, 2023 ACR in uh, sunny San Diego, California. As we all know uh, that the use of uh, JAK inhibitors has been associated with increased risk of thromboembolism uh, from the oral surveillance data. Therefore, there is a, a need for us to understand the immunopathogenesis behind this. Uh, today we will discuss about uh, an abstract number 1676 
just to let you know that this abstract has been awarded uh, as an uh, emerging uh, Excellence Investigator Award to Dr. Paula David, David, who unfortunately could not be here today. Uh, and uh, she was working with uh, Professor Dennis McGonagall, who is the senior author, who is available to be interviewed today. Hi, Dennis. Hi, yes, hi. Uh, it's nice to be in sunny San Diego from Leeds. Yeah. yeah. So, so we work together, and, and Dennis is from Leeds as well. Um, so would you like to tell us about uh, the background of the study and what motivated you yes, to look into yeah. this topic? So uh, as we all know, jack inhibition has been linked to thrombosis, and the mechanisms are poorly understood. And with us working on respiratory wards during the COVID pandemic, we become aware of this phenomenon of, of immunothrombosis or immune-driven thrombosis. So. Um, I sent Paula to work with Robert Arians, who is a specialist coagulation laboratory in Leeds, uh, to explore the idea that uh, jack inhibition uh, may in some way increase immune-driven thrombosis. So what uh, Paula did was she got blood samples from rheumatoid arthritis, inactive and active, and also control samples. And um, she extracted the mononuclear cell fraction from these, and then uh, she activated them in the laboratory um, with lipopolysaccharide and also other toll receptor agonists like poly-IC. And then she collected the, the supernatants from these cells and uh, subsequently added them to a normal plasma to see if that accelerated clot formation. And that is called a turbidity assay. She also added the supernatants from the rheumatoid and control cells to whole blood in an assay called thromboelastography to look at clot formation in whole blood and not just plasma, and the whole blood also including platelets. Um, so what they, uh, so the key, the key experiment was when we added um, uh, tofacitinib to lipopolysaccharide-stimulated macrophages, we found that uh, the lipopolysaccharide uh, increased the rate of cl clot formation, but the addition of tofacitinib actually increased it even more. Um, uh, so we then uh, did the thromboelastography and we similarly saw that the whole blood clotting was in no way diminished uh, with the addition of a JAK inhibitor to the lipopolysaccharide or a surrogate for infection driven uh, thrombosis. Um, so to explore that further we then did bulk RNA sequencing and we saw that many genes were upregulated and downregulated differentially when tofacitinib was added to LPS compared to LPS alone. And some inflammatory genes, including those related to IL-12, went up. And uh, anti-inflammatory gene expression in macrophages, including protein S, which rheumatologists will have heard of protein S and C, mm -hmm. that actually went down significantly. So there's a, a myriad of potential mechanisms. So the obvious question then is, all of this work was done with tofacitinib. So then we did the same experiments with uh, uh, JAK2, JAK1, JAK2, JAK3, pan-JAK inhibitors. And we saw that most of the JAK inhibitors, but not all, had this uh, effect. So to summarize, uh, our work, Paula's work, she basically uh, stumbled across a hitherto unappreciated mechanism whereby in certain circumstances, the presence particularly of bacterial uh, cell wall products, but not, not toll 3 agonists, it was linked to the bacterial uh, cell wall product. In certain circumstances, this could increase uh, thrombosis. 
uh, potentially in both the arterial and venous trees in vivo. Uh, so more work to be done, of course. Yeah, and, and this is really interesting finding. And you also look into like, the whole, you know, in the pan of Jack and to see the you know, association with the thrombosis. So um, when you say uh, so potentially this could be triggered by some you know, bacterial infection. Yes, yes. So you know, in terms of our, for clinical practice, do you think what should we do to um, an employee trying to prevent you know the thrombotic yeah. de uh, development from Jack use? Yeah. So we I didn't say, but in, in active RA compared to remission RA the uh, clot formation was faster. So uh, controlling rheumatoid well may uh, diminish the uh, risk of this immunothrombosis. Mm. So maybe low dose steroids simultaneously. Mm. Nobody li likes in the current era likes to mm. mention the word steroids. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the other thing about infection is we believe that this phenomenon in vivo, what happens is we likely aspirate bacteria into our respiratory tract. We're slightly immunosuppressed by the jack overall. Uh, but then when the, the, the jack inhibition in conjunction with bacteria in the, in the, in the, in the alveolar network may trigger uh, this clotting, which will trigger then a little bit of pleurisy, uh, and uh, this may trigger secondary vascular thrombosis. So it gives a pulmonary artery thrombosis in situ rather than embolization from the deep veins. So yeah. it, it just gives us a general different view. For example, Antiphospholipid syndrome, we now know this is a distinct pathogenesis, mm. so we could probably give a, an antiphospholipid patient a jack if we had to. Mm. So it's just that we, I think we've stumbled upon a mechanism in conjunction with our excellent uh, mm. uh, coagulation laboratory uh, uh, collaborators who, who obviously deserve all the credit. Yeah. So just lastly, just before we wrap up, so just through trying to give in terms of clinical context, so if a patient who are on jack inhibitors and were admitted, you know, because of a pneumonia yes. or something like that, would you then say that we should really pay attention in terms of trying to give them anticoagulation in the, you know, during the hospitalization to prevent from thrombosis? Uh, yeah, so th that's, that's a good question and uh, you've just put it on the radar. Mm. Uh, so we need, to, we need to now start thinking like this mm. if people uh, with the pneumonia uh, are at, at, at risk of this, but it is important to point out that people with uh, viral pneumonia, including influenza, not just COVID, and bacterial pneumonia, do naturally get immunothrombosis mm -hmm. to block the uh, avenues of exit of the bacteria mm -hmm. and prevent bacteremia. So it is a f immunothrombosis is a physiological phenomenon. Uh, mm -hmm. So that may not be a big issue. Yeah. It's very interesting. Uh, so we are so glad uh, having you, Dennis, here uh, with, with Room Now, and thank you so much for summarizing your work beautifully in you know, for us. Thanks, yes, for asking me, and there's no bias that you chose a fellow Leeds person, <laughs> I hope. That's good. Yeah. Uh, so uh, thank you so much for listening to our interview. I hope you find it uh, useful and informative. Uh, so you can follow Room Now uh, through various social media outlets, YouTube, Twitter, and etc. for more contents of ACR 23 coverage. Bye, everyone. Thank you.